Alrighty. Hey, welcome to those who are not able to be with us in person this morning as well, if you're on YouTube, website, or somewhere else. And uh, it's good to see you this morning. We are going to continue in Mark's Gospel that we've been in all through this year. Last week, we covered uh, Jesus' initial words and actions in Jerusalem. His time in Jerusalem is the third and final scene of the story of Jesus' life written by John Mark, writer of Mark's Gospel. And in this final scene, this final stage in Jerusalem, we've just read last week about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. And uh, he's declaring the temple uh, to be fruitless, essentially, because it's supposed to be this place of God's presence and this place of prayer, and a house of prayer, Jesus says, whereas it's actually become this place of commercial activity, um, not what it's supposed to be. And so today what we're going to do is follow on from that and look at quite a substantial portion uh, of Mark's Gospel in chapters 11 and 12, where Jesus then interacts with the religious leaders who he's just uh, upset and offended quite badly, and it's all of them. There's all these different kinds of religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the the scribes, the the teachers of religious law, all of them. They're all coming and going, Jesus, we don't like what's going on here. Uh, But what we're going to do is we're actually going to break it up, and Cam's going to read a a little bit, uh, one passage, and then I'm going to give some reflection, then the next passage, and a bit more reflection. We're going to break it up into the four parts, um, just to kind of learn from the common theme that runs through them all today one bit at a time. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll have Cam read the first bit. Father, thank you for this morning, and uh, that this, uh, this house, this, time, this place that we get together t- this morning, um, is no longer a-, a temple, a distinct place where we encounter your presence, because you have made us to be temples and a temple of your Holy Spirit. You've be- made us to be people who carry your presence. What a privilege, Lord God, to be made into holy people uh, who are temples of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that this morning we would learn and understand and realize the, the privilege and the blessing of being close to you, of being in your presence, being filled with your presence. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning, you would speak to us as the beginning of experiencing your presence this encounter with you, hearing your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks, Cam. Mark chapter 11, uh, 27 to 33. Again, they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded... By what authority are you doing all those things? Who gave you the, the right to do them? I'll tell you, by what authority I do these things, if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask, why didn't we believe John? But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, We don't know. And Jesus responded, Then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. So let me begin with a question. Do you believe that God's plan for your life 
is fundamentally good. There's no pressure. You don't have to say yes. You might be still wrestling with that question. But if you're a follower of Jesus, good chance. So yeah, I, I believe God loves me. He wants the best for me. His plan for me is good. So if your answer is yes, let me ask you a second question. Do you then live entirely submitted to God's plan for your life instead of your own? It would stand to reason that if God's plan for our lives is good and perfect and we believe that, and we say, oh, I know the plans you have for me, the plans prosper me, Jeremiah 29.11 that we like to quote. If we believe that, it would stand to reason that we'd be entirely willing to say, Okay, God, I will let you direct every step, every single day. And yet, I know I don't live that way all the time. And I suspect you know that in your life, it's not always the case either. There's there's this disconnect that happens between, I believe God's ways are perfect, and therefore I'll live that way and not my own. There's a disconnect. Now, there's reasons that happens. I think here's a few of them. Part of it's doubt. We, we just know that, yeah, God's plans are great, but I don't know, maybe they aren't so great after all because it, it feels hard right now. I'm not so sure. Doubt creeps in. Part of it's impatience. You know, I, I know I've got blessings in store for me in God's plan for my life, but I, I really need some now, God, so I'll, I'll just try and... Together myself. Uh, part of it's, I think, misunderstanding that we think the good in God's plan are things that are, are a bit different to what they actually are. We, we equate blessing from God with more superficial things, wealth and, 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 and financial security, or we replace real love with just human affirmation. Or maybe it's assumption that we go, okay, Here's God's will, and my desires are really not that far removed. In fact, what I want is probably what God's, what God wants, so I'll just assume I should go after it. So these things creep in, and they create a disconnect between God has a good plan for my life, and I'll live completely submitted to it. So we try to make our own blessings, if you like. Even though we know that doesn't work, we know it's only living according to God's will that that allows us to have a peace and a joy and a fulfillment, to have real life, as Jesus said. The interactions that Jesus has between, uh, with the religious leaders in the passages we just read and that we're going to read today uh, are about a battle of two authorities. A battle of two authorities. Jesus, they, the, these religious leaders, they say to Jesus, by whose authority are you doing these things? They say that because when it comes to the temple, uh, they believe it's under their authority. They're like, we run this, we own this, we drive this, all in the name of the Lord, of course, but it's ours. The temple's ours. We, we, what, what's, we, what we say goes here. Jesus comes in with a different view. He says, you know what, there's only one who should have any authority, and what he says should go, and that's my Father in heaven. That's God himself. God should have the authority here. And so Jesus responds to these religious leaders saying, um, I'm gonna, I'll answer your question about where's my authority come from if you'll answer the question, where did John the Baptist's authority come from, heaven or just human beings? And there's one commentator I read who suggests that Jesus asked this because the correct answer to Jesus' question, would, which is the authority came from heaven, 
would by itself provide or at least suggest the answer to theirs, that Jesus came from heaven. And their refusal to answer his question would signal their unwillingness to accept his implied answer to theirs. Now, if that didn't make sense, this is essentially what it's, what it's saying. They did not want to accept anyone else's authority, even God's, if it usurped their own. If anything overrode their desire and their authority over this thing, then we don't want to hear about it. And this presents us with this fundamental question of that, and, and this fundamental uh, choice that human beings have in life. God's will or my will? It's a battle of two authorities. God's will or my will? There's this war that's going on between us, this battle inside of us between two different authorities. Uh, last week I talked briefly about how the temple in Jerusalem uh, was kind of the home of God's presence to the Jews. It was the place of his presence. And it was being turned into a commercial enterprise, some place of commercial activity, and Jesus was greatly disturbed by this. And the reason he was greatly disturbed by this is because, as, as our pastor and author Mark Sayers says, progress is the God-void and human-driven version of presence. I'm sorry I forgot to put that up on the screen again, but you might remember from last week that human-driven progress, where we say we want to make it happen, is the opposite. It's void of God, and it's the human-driven version of God's plan to let his presence fill the earth. Progress is the opposite of presence. God wants to fill the world with his presence. His presence with himself. He's doing it already. He is filling the world with his presence. It's not yet complete, but it will be one day. And he's doing it through us. We are part of that plan. And this is the good plan of God that is full of blessing and of joy that he has for us. So when we decide to say, you know what, let's create the blessing for ourselves. Let's create the joy and the peace and the, the contentment for ourselves. It's not just this kind of slight diversion from God's plan. We go, you know, it's pretty much the same, but just that, you know, it's actually saying, you know, let's replace God's presence with our own desire to progress as human beings. Let's ditch God because we don't need him for our own well-being. Let's just go our own way. Human-driven progress and God's presence can't exist. It's this battle of two authorities that's going on. And the dialogue that we're about to hear between, in a number of different scenes between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, it prompts us just to ask some simple questions today. God's will or my will? And am I seeking after good things? Which seems harmless. Or am I actually seeking after the God whose plan for me is good? Am I seeking good things or the God whose plan for me is good? Whose voice? is the strongest in my life? Whose authority sets the direction of my life? God's presence or progress driven by ourselves? Um, before we read on, Cam's going to read the next section in a second. Um, you may have noticed earlier in this year, uh, earlier this year that we started, rather than just incorporating the, the scripture into the sermon, and I would just read the, the bits of the, of the passage we were studying, that we would have the distinct Bible reading. And after the Bible reader read it, they say, this is the word of the Lord, and you would say, thanks be to God. Why did, we just, why did we start doing this all of a sudden? Is it just because 
They say millennials like tradition these days, so we should sort of, you know, start putting it in, or what's the point? For me, it's, while a, a relatively small thing, it's, I think it's valuable because it reminds us each and every week, whose word are we listening to today? Is this the time to listen to Luke or whoever's preaching on the day? Are we listening to John Mark, the author of Mark's Gospel? Are we here to reflect on our own beliefs and think, oh, does this you know, affirm what I believe or challenge what I believe? Whose voice are we listening to? Is it one of those or is it that we're here to and have heard the words that God has spoken? Are we here to then give thanks for what God has spoken and to lean in to hear what God wants to say to us? And we assume that's the case, but is that really what we're doing? I'm hoping that as we say each time today, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, that it, it prompts us each and every week to, to recognize, you know what, oh yeah, this is God speaking. And, and God, your voice is my ultimate authority, and so I, I'm listening today. Um, let's read these portions of Scripture and then allow God to, um, to share with us his invitation to us and his challenge to us. Thanks, Cam. So Mark chapter 12. Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to, a tenant farm, to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed, until there was only one left his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He will come and kill those farmers, and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling this story against them. They were the wicked farmers. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. And so this story is a, a, a metaphor referring where Jesus is talking about the prophets of the Old Testament who are sent by God with his message, who the Israelite people ignored and rejected and, and sometimes killed. And then it's talking about Jesus, who's God's own son, who was sent, and they also rejected and killed him. But think um, about this parable for a minute. How could someone, anyone, how could they become so ruthless that they would kill in order to acquire land and possession for themselves, no matter how good and valuable that land and possession is. How could someone become that way, that they would kill to take that? Well, it's easy. They'd lost sight of the fact that as managers 
of the property entrusted by the owner, they could already experience the full blessings of ownership. They already had everything they needed. They experienced the full blessings of that ownership of being lessors. They leased that property. But in this parable, the farmers had become so fixed on, we must have this for ourselves. We must take this. That they then had this self-centeredness that led them to actions so dire that they lost it anyway. And so hopefully nobody here has murdered in order to uh, take property or money or anything for themselves. I don't think that would be the case, but that's not the point. When anything we have, whenever anything we have, we consider to be under our authority and ownership and not under the ownership and authority of our Heavenly Father, we end up with this blind, selfish action that means we are acting out of self-motivated will. Because we think, you know what, this is mine, this is mine, not this is entrusted to me by God. And it leads us to a selfishness, and that separates us from God. That separates us from His presence. This applies to everything that belongs to God and is entrusted to us, which is everything, Right? It's all his, everything, that, 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 you, you, me, everything around us, it's all his. It all belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord and everything's in it. And for the Jewish leaders, it was the temple. The temple was the thing that was so valuable to them. could have been anything, relationships, property, finance, intellect, health, status, whatever. For them, it was the temple and that status, that authority they had. For us, on the other hand, it might be something quite different. It might be our marriage, it might be our kids, it might be certain relationships. If we are temples of the Holy Spirit, if we believe our family is a mini temple of the Holy Spirit, a, a, a people who are called to be a house of prayer, a place of God's prayer, a people of God's presence, what are we filling it with? What are we filling ourselves with? Are we filling ourselves with stuff or do we fill... Our temples with the things of God. Do we fill them with prayer? Do we fill them with worship? Is our temple, is our house a house of prayer? Now, it's easy to say. Of course, it's much harder to live out, filling our lives as temples with God's presence. But giving God the authority over our lives means giving Him a say. And this is the first thing I want to highlight today, that we need to just give God space in our lives. What does that look like for you? You know, for Karen and I, one of the things that's really important here was to uh, make the Sabbath holy. It took a long time for us to get this right, to, to have one day a week where we just rest. You know, it's taking us even longer to ensure that we're not just resting, but resting well. Sometimes we get it right. This weekend just gone, was a, was a, we got it right, I think. Other times we haven't quite got it right. It, it takes even longer to not just rest well, but to rest in the Lord. But that's giving space to God in our lives. Maybe for you, it's to actually give space literally in your house to God. Uh, and, and physically, you know, we've actually done that here at the Billabong in this house. Uh, now, that would seem a bit strange to go, well, why in a church building, which is all about worship, would you need to give a certain space specifically to prayer and worship? And I'm talking about our prayer room. Well, we... We use this building for all sorts of different things. 
People rent it. We use it for events. And, and yet there's one room, small room, but one room that's specifically and only for God, for time with God, for being in his presence, for prayer, for worship. And I've said before that I think it's, it is and is more and more becoming the most important room in our whole facility because that's what it's for, that most important thing, space for God. Maybe you have a, a spare junk room at home and you just need, you know what, maybe we can clear that out and uh, make it a holy space. If, if you're not able to do that, maybe there's some other space that you can make for God. You know, Karen and I are looking at doing that in our house with, with one room, just setting it aside, no phones allowed, that's a good start, and just making it a space for God. So just think about that. What does it look like for you to give space to God in your life? In your time, what does it look like to have space for God? In your physical space, to have space for God. Let's read the next section, and I just need to grab something that I forgot. So uh, read slowly. So chapter 13 to 17. Later the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin, and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. His, re- his reply completely amazed them. This is the word of the Lord. So, same principle, right? If God is actually the ultimate authority in our lives, we understand what belongs to him, and what belongs to him is everything. And so we treat it that way. It belongs to him. What belongs to God, we give to God. So what does that actually mean practically? There's, um, there's, there's a whole interesting thing going on in this passage with with Caesar's money and the coins that had Caesar's face imprinted onto them, um, which I'm not going to go into that in depth. Um, uh, but if I remember correctly, it's essentially about you know, what's, what Caesar's face is on, that belongs to him. So you might like to ask, what in your life has the imprint of God on it? What shows that it, belong, it belongs to God because of what it looks like? Does your family life, if you took a step back and looked at it, show that it reflects the, the love and the grace of God, that it, it belongs to God? Does your, uh, does your physical health match your belief that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are called to carry his presence to others? Does that match up? Does your credit card statement or your bank statement indicate that you must be a follower of Jesus because what it shows looks different to someone who doesn't follow Jesus? Hopefully the answer to some of those kinds of questions is yes, but inevitably the answer to some of them is no, because none of us are perfect quite like Jesus yet, where that sanctification that's happening in our lives. 
So God is inevitably the ultimate authority in some areas of our lives, and we can praise God for that. In other things, we still maintain control. You still maintain control and authority over your life and not God. And so what do we do with that? How do we shift that so that God is our authority? I think it starts with making space and then treating everything as belonging to God. Change how we handle what we have until it is blatantly obvious that it's God's and it's got his imprint on it. And when anyone else would look at it, they would know and could see that is the case because it's used for his glory, it's used for his purposes. It's stewarded, managed, like it belongs to him. And then we can say this, God, if for any reason I end up in need because I've handled your resources the way I believe honours you, then I trust you will provide for my every need. Do we say that? If for any reason I end up being stuck, if I need something to, for basic provision for my family or for myself, because I've tried to steward what you've given me wisely and to honour you, I God, I trust that you will, you will meet my needs in those times. I struggle with this. Aaron knows I struggle with this. Aaron, what are we going to do about the budget? We need more income. We need, you know, and then he's like, Luke, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Oh, yes, forgot. Thank you, Aaron, for that reminder. Whether it's on a business level or on a, even a church level, I struggle with this, or on a personal level or on a family level. This is so fundamental. Um, Cam, I have a question for you. I know you only signed up as a Bible reader today, but um, I've, got, I've got another request. Can you give me $1,000? You don't have it on you? You've got a credit card on you? Oh, um, I think, I'm sure you have PayPal, like the PayPass thing on your phone. Yeah, okay, so I can just, oh, you don't mind if I take out a thousand bucks cash on the ATM machine? Um, that's okay with you? No, okay, he's saying no, I think. Um, why? Well, what's, I don't see what it would be. Okay, just, can you just check under your chair for a second? Um, what, is that, what's in there? Yeah, can I have that? Thank you. Simple illustration, uh, when it's all being given to us by God in the first place, it's much easier to let go of, right? Cam didn't bring that $1,000 with him this morning. I put it there. When it's all being given to us by God in the first place, and we really believe that, we can gladly give it back. We can gladly use it the way he wants and if you're not sure what God wants, and I've wrestled with this too, I mean, well, okay, God, how do you want me to use it? What does it look like to give back what belongs to you? To you? I suggest pray and take a risk. I don't think that God is going to leave you hungry because you didn't hear him clearly. Oh, Cam, the way you stewarded what I gave you wasn't quite right. You're going to have to go without bread. I don't think God's going to do that. And God's going to look after us if, to the best of our ability, we use what he's given us to honour him. Let's read the final section. Chapter 18 to 27. Oh, verse 18 to 27, chapter 12. 
Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you don't know the Scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses, in the story of the burning bush? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. So this is just an interaction uh, between Jesus and one set of religious leaders who were in theological debate with other sets of religious leaders about the resurrection, uh, different beliefs on this. But Jesus uses it as an opportunity, again, to point out, look, guys, what is your focus here? Are you focusing on earthly things, on human things, or are you focusing on the ways of heaven? And he says this, your mistake is that you don't know the Scriptures, you don't know the Bible, and you don't know the power of God. Now, this bit about you know, your mistake is you don't know the Bible, this, is, this tends to be where the Reformed and Conservative types go, Amen, we need to get back to the Bible. The thing about this passage is that the Sadducees were actually the ones in the whole scene in that time who prided themselves on being the most biblical. And Jesus says to them, you don't understand it. You don't get it. You don't know it. You may know the Bible inside out and you may pride yourselves on being word-centered. And we may be the same. We may pride ourselves on knowing the Scriptures and, understand, and, and knowing them inside out. I know some people who know the Bible far better than I do. If that doesn't translate to a transformation in our life, a sanctification, a becoming more like Jesus and his power in our life, his voice translating to the power of God, then we've missed the point. In recent weeks, I've just been so blown away by the power of God's word, not the, 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 the genius of the Bible or the authority of Scripture or the, or the wonderful creativity of the Psalms or anything like that, but the way God speaks through these words in the most unexpected of ways, in the most personal ways. In recent weeks, I've, I've just been blown away by that. I've been praying in the prayer room or I've been with friends and, and God will, will drop something into my head like Aaron talked about earlier. And when I look it up, it just speaks directly into the situation I'm praying about or the people I'm praying for and sometimes it's just little things, but those little things remind me this Bible we have ain't just a book. 
It's not even just God's word, authoritative, able to speak into our lives, Logos word. It is the way he speaks to us personally, powerfully, by his Holy Spirit, because he wants a voice in our lives. God wants to speak into our lives and we must allow him to speak. Your mistake is that you you don't know the scriptures, you don't understand, and you don't know the power of God. It's not that they weren't biblical, grounded, believed in the authority of scripture, it's that they didn't know what it was really there for. We must allow God to speak. Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. Now he's talking about the resurrection, and the Sadducees were the group who denied that there would be a resurrection. Um, Why? Well, because that's beyond human ability. Resurrection doesn't happen out of our own desire for progress and to move forward. When God speaks, the impossible happens. Power of God. And the most important impossibility that I need to happen in my life is that me, myself, and I dies so that a new me is raised to life. That only happens when we allow God to speak, when we allow him to be the authority in our life. And so hopefully these three things just gives us something to take away this morning. Knowing that there's a battle of two authorities going on in our world, that battle exists within us as well. A battle of two authorities. Is it God's will or my will? Is it going to be my kingdom or is it going to be his kingdom? And we swing towards making our own plans because there's those things I mentioned earlier. There's doubt, there's assumption, there's impatience, there's misunderstanding. But when we do these three simple things, we make space for God. We just treat everything as if it belongs to God and we allow him to speak. I think then we start to find ourselves more in the middle of his plan. And guess what happens when we find ourselves more in the middle of God's plan? Our plan becomes a whole lot less attractive. And we go, why did we even choose that in the first place? And there's still doubt that creeps in and we swing back there and there's still uh, impatience that creeps in and we swing back there. But the more we find ourselves and place ourselves in God's will, the more we realize it's the best way to live. What if God's plan is to fill the world with his presence? The question I started with last week. If God's plan is to fill the world with his presence, what if he's doing it through us? Will we let him be the authority in our lives? Will we let him be the authority in our lives so it's not filled with the things that we chase after, but with his presence? Father, thank you so much for uh, this time together this morning to uh, allow you to speak to us through your word. I pray, Lord, that um, what we've heard this morning and what we've read this morning uh, would not just be forgotten, but, Lord, you would help us to carry this, this mandate with us to be people of Jesus, people like Jesus who make space for you, who listen to you and treat everything as yours. Lord, may we discover, each and every one of us, may we discover that this is the best way to live, that while we may not know at first, we may not really be sure at first that we discover that when we live in the middle of your will, your plan for us, it's the best way. Knowing that it will feel hard, knowing that it will feel like sacrifice, knowing that there will be loss, knowing that there will be disappointment, but that all of that is worth it because in the end there will be joy, there will be freedom, there will be peace, there will be hope and security in you because you're our provider. 
Lord, as we sing these words that your spirit would fall on us, that your kingdom would come, your will be done. May we be reminded that your way is the best way. In Jesus' name.